0: All right, I'll invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 22. (coughs) The Pretender. Luke 21 was the chapter detailing the future of Israel, the first immediate, uh, then afterward, the more distant future. In Luke 21, we were learning about the end, uh, right, right at the end at least, we were learning about the end times, and, and Jesus was telling about the future of Israel, first the future leading up to the destruction of the temple, and then the future as it would take place after the destruction of the temple uh, leading into the end times. We, we, we saw how those kind of merged and conflated, a little bit of dual, um, dual prophecy, a little bit of dual fulfillment idea there. As we step into Luke 22, it grounds us back into the immediate. We come effectively to the night of Jesus' betrayal, and uh, there, there will be a little bit of, of um, precursor to that, possibly the day or, or before, or even the day before that, and then into the night of his, um, uh, the Passover itself and, and when He will actually be betrayed. And we're going to focus this evening on a man of infamy. One who was with Jesus, one who heard Jesus, one who did mighty works in Jesus' name, and yet never knew Jesus personally. Had never accepted Christ as his own Messiah. This really pierces the mind of the believer, holds him accountable, shakes up the foundations of our thinking. And it is this that we'll focus upon this evening. But first, a little bit of history. We pick up in Luke 22, verse 1. The Bible says this. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. I'm going to park on this for a moment. I almost feel like I'm preaching two messages this evening, because the first bit of this message is going to be technical, historical, uh, lots of thinking, some numbers, those sorts of things. I'm going to be proving a point, And then the second half is going to be very doctrinal and very exhortative. So uh, bear with me through the first half. I'm going to be giving you a lot of information. If you were here this morning, you got a lot of information. I'm going to pump your head full of just a little bit more. And it surrounds another controversy. This morning, we were talking, of course, about the elements of the, the 70 weeks of Daniel and why we know what we know about the numbers and such. Uh, this evening, the the controversy that we're going to, to talk about in just a moment is the question of when did Jesus die? And we're coming up to Resurrection Sunday soon. And, and for most of us, it, it's, it's not a big deal. And indeed, as, as it stands, it really isn't a big deal. But we call Friday Good Friday and Traditionally, that's the day that we would believe. Jesus died on, and then, of course, he rose again on Saturday. Now, if you follow social media at all, which is something I would not recommend you doing, it'll make you sad, um, and, and among other things, it could ma- it makes you very angry, but if you do, if you're on social media, you'll see around this time many of your Christian friends uh, posting things of, no, Jesus died on Thursday, no, Jesus died on Wednesday, no, Jesus died on this day or that day, and uh, there's a lot of controversy surrounding this among Christian circles because it's not like we have anything better to do than to nitpick the day that Jesus died on, right? It's not like we have anything else in the Bible to to worry about. So we nitpick these sorts of things. Now, uh, to that end, I'm going to, when, when I give you the presentation about what I think and why I believe what I believe on this, it might sound nitpicky, but what I'm trying to do is equip you. I want to equip you so that when the question comes up, you can have thought through it. You don't necessarily have to agree with me on where I stand, uh, but, but you can have thought through it enough so that you don't have to necessarily see these things and then wonder what's going on here, what have I missed, is there something major, um, and it may be at least spur you to have thought about it a little bit. So I want to take a, a few minutes this evening and talk about the technicalities of timing. Did Jesus die on Wednesday? Did he die on Thursday? Did he die on Friday? Did he eat the Passover or did he die at the time the Passover lamb was slain? We know Jesus arose on Sunday morning. That one's quite clear. He arose on the first day of the week in the morning. Um, this, is, this, is, this is quite known from history and from our text. And there's no controversy surrounding this. So it's simply a matter of counting back the days. And there are some complications to that depending on how we are reading The text There are claims in the Gospels Particularly the Gospel of John In the five places where time is mentioned That seem to disagree with the other three Gospels And that's where this controversy comes from And in the end it's worth answering It's worth answering the controversy It's not necessarily worth answering the controversy But it's worth answering the potential Or the the confusion among the Gospels themselves to where we dig into the Gospels and we look at some, uh, a couple of things that seem to contradict and we find out how they don't contradict and how we can reconcile them together. So here's what we know. We know that Jesus' death took place around the Passover. We see that even here in Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. Passover and Unleavened Bread are two feasts which occur In succession. Passover began on the 14th day of the first religious month, that would be the month Nisan. On the Jewish calendar, the next day would officially begin uh, at night. So, if, if you follow a Jewish religious calendar, if you've ever seen a Jewish religious calendar, or if you know anybody who keeps Orthodox Jewish times, Um, you know that their, their day begins at 6 p.m. on the day previous. So if a person is going to observe the Sabbath, if an Orthodox Jew observes the Sabbath or a Seventh day Adventist as the case may be, uh, it begins at 6 p.m. on Friday night and it goes to 6 p.m on the next day. Seventh-day Adventists actually do sun, sundown to, sun, to sundown. They don't do 6 p.m. explicitly. Um, I don't know if the Orthodox Jews do that as well. But generally speaking, there's a 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. and that's a day in the religious calendar. So it goes from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, there would be 12 hours of night then and there would be 12 hours of day. And then the calendar would roll over. And they talk about, in the Bible, when they talk about the night and the day, they talk about the, the certain hour of the day or the certain hour of the night. So if they're saying the sixth hour of the night, that's midnight. The sixth hour of the day would be three, um, no, noon, would be noon, right? Um, and so we, we have 12-hour uh, increments and we're doing midnight and noon, yes. So uh, I, I hope that that's fairly clear to you. Uh, to this end, the day of Passover was the 14th. It was the 14th day of Nisan. That's when the Passover lamb would be slain. The meal for the Passover was to take place in the evening of the day that the Lamb was slain. Which means the meal would actually take place on the 15th. It would take place after the day rolled over into the night. It would take place after 6 p.m., generally speaking. And so they would actually eat the meal on the 15th, the night of the 15th, which was the same day, in our reckoning, as the day of the 14th, right? Because the day rolls over at 6 p.m. I hope you're with me there. Unleavened bread began on the 15th day of the same month and would continue for seven days. Now, to this end, the whole feast was eight days long from Passover to the end of Unleavened Bread, and they were often regarded as the same feast. Indeed, even in our passage here in Luke, you can see that. The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. So they called the Passover a feast of unleavened bread. While they're given different names and technically they were different feasts, the Jews regarded them as one feast. Uh, it's not just the scriptures that tell this. If you read the historian Josephus, who was a Jewish historian that lived in the years after Christ, uh, you find that he regarded the, the, the feast of unleavened bread as an eight Day feast because he included the Passover as a part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. To that end, the entire feast would sometimes be called the Passover. The entire feast would sometimes be called Unleavened Bread or there could be a difference between them. And because of this, this muddies the waters a little bit, chronologically. It muddies the waters a little bit because... Are are they talking about the Passover day? Are they talking about the whole feast? Are they talking about unleavened bread as just seven days? Are they talking about unleavened bread as eight days? Luke, it would seem, as we get from verse one, called the whole eight days unleavened bread and it began with Passover. That seems to be how Luke is considering this idea. Back to putting pieces together. Please take note that I, I believe what I'm going to present today is somewhat of a, of a contradiction to what I've said in the past. In the past, I have stated that Jesus died on Passover when the, when the Passover lamb was slain. That's not what I'm presenting this evening. Uh, through further study, I, I don't see that as I regarded it before. I believe Jesus was slain on the day after the Passover lamb was slain. The day, same day that they ate the Passover, the 15th, not the 14th. And again, you can feel free to disagree with me. You can agree with old me. You can agree with new me. You can disagree with both me. Uh, uh, th- this, is, this is not something you know that, that we need to split the church over here. But I do want to help you work through this together. So we know from Luke 22, verse 7. Luke 22 verse 14, Matthew 26 verses 17 and 20, Mark 14 verses 12 and 17, that it was the first day of unleavened bread that Jesus sent his disciples to prepare the Passover. They say it's on the first day of unleavened bread that Jesus sent his disciples to prepare the Passover, and it was that very evening, the same evening, that he ate it. We'll see. We'll we'll get farther into Luke 22 in a moment, and we'll we'll see that come to pass, but I have to lay more of a foundation here. So we would believe this to be the 15th. uh, uh, Excuse me. We would believe this not to be the 15th, but the 14th, the day of the preparation for the Passover. We would believe it, or I would believe it to be the 14th. Jewish historians, uh, the Josephus, the eight-day feast, what we see in Luke 1, all of that seems to mesh with this idea that the first day of unleavened bread as they would regard it would be the 14th, the day that is called Passover, the 14th of Nisan. Now, where this gets a little messy is as we continue through the various accounts of Jesus's trials. So in Matthew chapter 26, verses 3 through 5, we read this. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest, who is called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not on the feast or the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Notice day there is in italics. Day there being in italics means that that is a word that was supplied by the King James translators. It's not a word that's in the original. So as we would understand this in the Greek, not on the feast is actually what's being said here, not just the feast day. So the chief priest, the Bible says, specifically did not want to kill Jesus on the feast and this has led people or the feast day and this has led people to say okay because they said they didn't want to kill him on the feast day this means he must have died before Thursday or before um, the Thursday which would have been the 14th of Nisan which would have been the Passover he must have died before that but that's not necessary because we understand and what we will understand is that Judas seeks to betray Jesus in a couple of days prior or, or, or at least slightly prior to them preparing the Passover. And it could have been that their initial intention was, we've got to find a way to kill this guy, but not during the feast. But then when Judas comes with his offer, and his offer is too good to pass up, they say, well, we're going to just forget about that whole not killing him on the feast thing, because he's going to have to die here. And so this does not demand that they did not kill him on a feast or on a feast day it simply expresses their desire because they thought that there would be an uproar among the people how did they solve that desire by having their kangaroo court in the middle of the night it was at midnight when he was brought before to be judged and so they do their kangaroo court in the middle of the night and that minimizes the uproar Judas worked a way for them to be able to get Jesus at a time when he was away from the crowd So that they could take him and do their kangaroo court without the crowds being in an uproar. Except the crowds that they wanted to be there, of course. So, this does not necessarily negate or or, or give us all that much insight into when Jesus would die. The next problem, as we consider it, is found in John 18. Just after uh, Jesus is arrested. And we read this in regard to Jesus' trial in verse 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the Hall of Judgment, and it was early, and they themselves went not into the Judgment Hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they may might eat the Passover. So the implication here is that they had not yet eaten the Passover, which by all accounts, if it would have been the day of Passover, they would have eaten that night prior. And this throws a little bit of a kink in the idea here it would lend itself to the idea that jesus ate with his disciples a day early and then perhaps was killed on the 14th and everyone else was going to eat the passover that evening but the phrase to eat the passover was not necessarily uh specific in jewish terminology we've already established how the passover can mean the entire feast and during the entire eight days of that feast, it would have been abominable for them to go into a Gentile courtroom during the entire, because they were sanctified for the whole feast. You remain sanctified for the entire eight days of the feast. And so it, whether it was day one or day three or day five of the feast, they would not have wanted to go in lest they could not continue in the feast without being Cleansed because they would be defiled by going into this Gentile courtroom, by being a part of this process. Say, Pastor, is there any reason to believe that, that the idea of eating the Passover, if they were talking about the feast, not just the day, is there any precedent for that in Scripture? There is. In Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 22, we see a similar idea with Hezekiah. The Bible says, And Hezekiah spake comfortably unto all the Levites... That taught the good knowledge of the Lord, and they did eat throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. So the idea of eating was not just a one-day thing in a feast or an observance, right? It was a, the, whole, the whole eight days was a feast, and it was there as... As a feast, so again it 's not necessary that we would say it has to be on the Passover day that they were worried about as much as it could have been about any part of the feast you say well pastor you 're going through a lot of loops to uh, to, to try to negate some of these things. Why are you, why are you so invested in the idea that, that they ate the Passover on the day of Passover and then he died the next day and, uh, and then in the, in the grave and then arose? Well, as we continue to flesh it out, I'll show you why I really do feel as though this is the best option. So we come to another troubling statement in John that would seem to conflict in John 19 verses 13 and 14. The Bible says this, When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. Well, here we find ourselves at a hearing between Jesus and Pilate, and the text tells us that it was taking place on the preparation of the Passover on the sixth hour at first glance we would think well if they've not even prepared the passover yet then this must mean that we're still on the 14th but in fact this is one of the reasons why i believe they're on the 15th already and follow this with me notice the text does not say that this was the day of preparation for the passover it says this was the day of the preparation of the passover the day of the preparation was a very specific day in Jewish culture. When we note the language of the New Testament, we find this phrase, day of preparation, was a day that signified a preparation for a Sabbath. The day of preparation was the day before the Sabbath. We see this in Mark 15, verse 42. And now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. The day before the Sabbath was called the preparation. That was the label for the day. John himself used this term explicitly to speak of the day before the Sabbath in John 19.31. The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation, that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day. For it was the Sabbath, for, for that Sabbath day was an high day because it was a Sabbath day on a feast. Besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the day of the preparation was a preparation for the Sabbath. We see that in Mark 15. We see that in John 19, 31. And this lends me to believe that Jesus died on Friday, the day before the Sabbath. The preparation of the Passover. In other words, it was the day of preparation during the Feast of Passover. That would have been on a Friday during the Feast of Passover. Passover so Jesus is standing before Pilate on the sixth hour of the night that would be at midnight and then uh, on the 15th of Nisan and then that day he is crucified that day being called the day of preparation of the Passover the preparation of the Passover so within our timeline then Jesus told the disciples to prepare the Passover on the afternoon of the 14th. They ate the Passover meal together that evening in the first hours of the 15th. Jesus went to the garden where he was arrested and brought before the judges. He stood before Pilate at midnight. He was sentenced to be crucified that day. He was crucified on Friday, the 15th of Nisan, giving up the ghost on the ninth hour of the day. That would be 3 p.m. at the time of the, the afternoon sacrifice. There was haste to get him off the cross lest he be hanging on the Sabbath, which began at 6 p.m. on the same day. That would be the next day for them. Jesus was taken off the cross, buried in a tomb, arose the morning of the first day of the week, the morning of the 17th. And all of that is something, uh, as a whole, I believe, that's a pretty solid, um, a pretty solid, a pretty clear, a pretty airtight way of thinking. There's just one problem to all of this. And this is the kink in the whole thing. And this is a controversy rooted primarily in Jesus' teaching, which I cannot fully satisfy and answer for you. We find it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jesus is teaching, and he says, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says that he would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Now, this does not demand three full 24-hour periods, but what we would expect as we interpret Jesus literally is that Jesus would have, been, would have died and arisen in such a way that we could say, okay, he died in the day and then there's a night, day, night, day, night, or n- night, day, night, day, night, day, so that we have three days and three nights if we're interpreting Jesus literally here. This does not work if Jesus died on Friday. And he arose on Sunday. And this is the big kink that caused people to try to rethink things. And so they talk about how during feasts there could be different Sabbath days. And so maybe the preparation of the Sabbath was actually on on Thursday. And then Friday was a special Sabbath because of the feast and these sorts of things. Um, As we start dealing with all of these ifs, ands, and buts, I am far more comfortable and I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. I'm far more comfortable with the idea that Jesus saying three days and three nights was speaking of, a th- uh, of, of three, three days in Jewish reckoning. Not necessarily explicitly three days and three nights. I'm far more comfortable with that than I am trying to juggle Sabbath days and trying to juggle all of the other things that would be necessary in order for him to die on Wednesday or on Thursday. And I'll show you why I'm comfortable with this in just a moment, even though it's not the most literal translation of Jesus' words. So within this timeline, as we've established it, Jesus dies on the 15th at around 3 p.m. The day he died was the day of the 15th, right? So we have one day, the 15th. Then the night... Of the 16th, and then the day, of the, uh, the day of the 16th, so we have one night and two days, and then the night of the 17th, and the day of the 17th, and on the 17th he arose. So what we have there is three days and two nights, and there's not really any way we can jockey more than that. We can't, we can't find another night in there anywhere. That's what we have if Jesus died on Friday. But Jesus said, as Jonah was in the belly of the, of the whale for three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the earth for three days and three nights. And this is where the kink comes in. In order for these theories of Jesus dying on Thursday instead of on Friday, or Jesus dying on Wednesday instead of on Thursday, however, we have to re- it requires us then to assume that Jesus ate the Passover on a night other than the night of the Passover. And in order to believe that, I would have to assume that somewhere in the text it would mention that, or at least we'd have some record of the disciple saying, "Um, Jesus, this is strange, because it would have deeply offended every religious sensibility to eat the Passover on the wrong night, to kill the Passover on the wrong day that would have offended every religious sensibility. For them to have just done it without questioning when they questioned him for all of the other things that he, he, he kind of goofed up uh, or, or, or that he edited or altered uh, in the Jewish traditions doesn't make sense to me. It also doesn't make sense to me that we wouldn't have some, uh, maybe even the person that wanted to give him the upper room for the night, the, per- the person that they spent the upper room, you know, that owned the, 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 the lodge there. Would he not question that? Uh, would there be no questions about it? It seems strange to me that we wouldn't hear something about there being a different day that they ate the Passover if they ate the Passover on a different day. All attempts to reconcile Jesus' statement about the sign of Jonah with the reality that he arose on the first day of the week, which must be on the 17th, uh, have to go through them eating on another day if we try to take that fully literally we know that Jesus was crucified during the day. We can't say that he was crucified in the night to add that extra night because we know that the sun was blackened, was darkened, right? So we can't say that he, we you know that the kangaroo court happened at midnight and then they crucified him in the morning uh, before, the, before six. We can't say that. So we, we can't do that either. Now, as we work through all of this and I, I've got more notes here which I'm going to skip on why it's okay for us to believe that the third day that there don't have to be three full days some people say there has to be three full days in the grave Thursday, Friday and Saturday for him to arise on Sunday Esther talks about this the idea of Esther asking Mordecai and all of the people to pray for three days and then, uh, and, and then she'll go into the king and she asked them to pray for three days and she went in on the third day so the idea that three days includes the day of the, on either end is something very Jewish. That's that's not a problem for us to say that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for him to die on Friday and to arise, rise on Sunday is three days in the Jewish mind. That's not a problem. If you want all of the reasons why we can we can defend that, um, I've got my notes here. I'm just not going to get through all of it. If I'm going to have you here all night, if I if I don't skip some of that, so. Um, the three days and the three nights adding Friday and, and Sunday as those that's a very biblically we have a lot of biblical precedent for that we don't have to force Thursday, Friday and Saturday in the grave for him to die one day three days in the grave and then to arise on Sunday we don't have to force that why then would Jesus specify this thing if not to explicitly demand three days and three nights in the grave that's the final question right why would Jesus say, as Jonah was in the, the belly of the whale for three nights and three days, so too must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three nights and three days? Why would he specify that if he's not going to be in the belly of the earth, the heart of the earth, for three days and three nights explicitly? And I have a theory. My theory is that he did this so that biblical s- scholars don't try to explain away the resurrection. Pastor, what do you mean? Well, the world says that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, right? this is This is the big contention. this is the resurrection is the hinge upon which Christianity turns. And so there might be that some biblical scholar, in a desire to reconcile the scriptures with paganism, as many of them try to do, attempts to explain away the Bible. And so he goes to second peter three eight. And he talks about how one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. And because Jesus said that he would spend three days in the grave, that must mean that he'll arise someday, maybe 3,000 years, right? Because a thousand years is a day or, or maybe three million years. And so he might be able to do this and then say, see, Jesus hasn't risen from the dead yet, but he's going to rise one day and we're waiting for that, that resurrection. This is the same thing they do with cre- the creation account, Right? They say, well, creation, uh, the week of creation, it might have been ages or eons or whatever. A, A thousand years with the Lord is as a day and a day is as a thousand years. So who's to say that each day of creation is not a billion years? Well, the problem with that is that in the Hebrew, there's a very specific way that they designate real days. And the evening and the morning was the first day. And the evening and the morning was the second day. And the evening and the morning was the third day and so on. And so we recognize there was one evening and one morning, that, that, that's, that, that's, 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 that's a day, that's a actual day. As, I mean, we, we, we see an evening, we see a morning, day begins, day ends, it's a day. The next, the next day the sun rises again, it's a new day. And Genesis is explicitly trying to tell us these were, these were days. Because they talk about the evening and the morning. What if the reason why Jesus said that he wanted, what is the reason why he said, I will spend three days and three nights in the grave was not explicitly to say, you have to count the actual numbers of nights and days, but to tell these Hebrew listeners three literal days. Three literal days. And then in the Jewish mind, you can count Friday, you can count Sunday because that's how the Jewish mind works. You can count day one and day three as full days even if you don't accomplish the full day. And so you've got the day of Friday, all day Saturday, and the morning of Sunday, that's three days. And they're actual days so that we can't say those three days are really 3,000 years uh, because Jesus said day and night. That's my theory. Is it perfect? No. If you roll your eyes and say, Pastor, I don't, get, I don't believe you, that's fine. Uh, but at the end of the day, we've got to reconcile contradictions one way or another. And they do reconcile. And I'm comfortable with this, biblically speaking. I'm comfortable with all of the way, that, through Jewish thinking and the way the Jewish mind works, I'm comfortable with this. If you're not comfortable with it, that's absolutely fine with me. I, I don't mind. It doesn't matter that much. Jesus died, he rose again, he's alive. We're okay here, I hope. That's all the time I'm going to spend on that. We must, needs, move on. Verse 2. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. We see our old antagonist, the chief priests and scribes, seeking how they might kill Jesus, and how of killing him... The the how of killing him is somewhat of a struggle for them. Not because they're concerned about him, not even really because they're concerned about Roman law, but as we've talked about already, they aren't sure how to kill him without turning the people against them. That's why they didn't want to kill him on the feast days. They wanted to kill him presumably either before or after because they're trying to kill him without really getting the people upset. Their concern is themselves. Their concern is themselves. They don't want to incur the wrath of the people... So they need to find a way to manipulate the emotions of the people for a short time in order to accomplish the deed of seeing Jesus killed without them losing their own credibility. Now, to this point, there have been several attempts to destroy Jesus that all have failed. This is not for lack of trying. They've attempted to destroy him. They've attempted to d- discredit him. They've attempted to stone him. At one point, he was almost thrown off a cliff, all of these things, but but Jesus' time had not yet come, so they were not successful, but now Jesus' time had come, and we begin to see the elements of the darkness of this world function now without the former restraint of God. To this point, every attempt to kill Jesus has come against the will of God, and so there has been a divine restraint against their capacity to harm him or to... To destroy him because God has been protecting Jesus, that restraint is now lifting, and we're going to begin to see darkness move, the, 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 the evil of darkness of this world moving against Christ. And that's what we read about in verses 3 through 6. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Take care, take note of that last little bit. Why did they need Judas? They knew, they knew who Jesus was, right? Uh, wh- why did they need Judas? Because they needed someone to tell them when Jesus would be away from the multitudes and where he'd be when the multitudes weren't there. That's really where Judas comes in here. That's why they needed an inside guy. When can we get to Jesus without the multitudes being there? When would be the best time for this? Comparing Scripture with Scripture, we find in John 12, verse 6, that Judas was a thief. A covetous man. To this end, we would recognize that Judas has uh, had this problem of covetousness for a while. He was a man who loved money and his own priorities in this life operated above that of Jesus Christ. This passion was his master rather than Christ was his master. This passion for money, for covetousness, opened his heart to the influence of the great deceiver to work against our Lord. When the time came to choose between Jesus and money, Judas chose money, revealing that though he was among the 12, he had never left all to follow Christ. Rather, he had held on to an affection that was more important to him than the testimony of Christ. And it might be little wonder now why it was that Jesus was so often telling his disciples "You cannot serve God and mammon. Because indeed, there was one among them who was still fighting this battle who is still waiting, who has still not made this choice. Judas is going to now make this choice and he's going to choose the wrong way. To this end, he fell short of saving faith. And as we know from scriptures, he is called in John 17, verse 12, the son of perdition. He is the son of destruction. We see in this long list, uh, in, in this a long list of abuses that led to his final downfall. A covetous man, chose the love of money above the love of Christ, fed his covetous nature by being the one to hold the money bag, as we know from scriptures. He was the disciple who held the funds for their, their group, and he was a thief, and he would steal. He would skim off the top of those funds. His conscience, having been quenched through years now of hearing Jesus speak while pretending to be a true follower, Placed him into a state of vulnerability to the deceits of Satan, and so Satan fills Judas, and he goes to the chief priests and to the captains, and he offers to them the opportunity to betray Jesus. That Jesus, we've seen already, we saw last time that Jesus would nightly go to the Mount of Olives, most likely to pray. We would presume that 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 would be his his reason for going. What the chief priests wanted was a place where they could take Jesus when the multitude was not around, when it would not cause a ruckus or a fuss, and it was not his primary loyal followers that would be there at the, at, at the trial. And this is exactly what Judas was offering here. So they were glad, and they made a deal that they would give him money to betray him when the betrayal was complete. The deal being done, Judas returns to the other eleven. We don't exactly know what day or what night this was. We pick up in verses 7 through 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed and he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. So it's the day when the Passover was to be killed and he tells them to do it. To go and prepare the Passover for them. This would lend itself to the idea that this was Thursday. This was the first day of the feast, right? And he said unto them, behold... When ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber? Where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples. And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went... And found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. So we find ourselves, what we would say, what we would presume to be, on the 14th day of Nisan, the day of Passover, when the lamb must be killed. Jesus sends Peter and John to prepare this Passover in order to eat it. And they ask Jesus, Where are we going to eat this Passover? to which Jesus replied that they should enter the city, that there would be a man holding a, 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 a pitcher of water, that upon seeing him, they were to follow him to the house into which he entered. When he entered in, they were to speak to the good man of that house, to the man who, who owned the house or who ran the house and ask for his guest chamber in order to eat the Passover with the master. Very reminiscent here of when he got the donkey, That they said the master has need of this And and they let him go recognizing That Jesus was the one here And that he had this authority So the disciples go And they ready the Passover As requested Now we're going to talk about The Passover meal itself next week And we're going to do so Specifically because we're going to talk about Communion The Lord's table And that's going to be the focus I didn't want to draw That focus away from it By adding this to that so we'll focus on that next week and, and then we will also partake in communion together at the end of the service next week. And as we apply our message, it's going to be a bit of a longer application than usual. I want to talk about Judas Iscariot. There's only one point and then we're going to have several subpoints under it. And the point is this. Associations, work, knowledge, these are only as good as the faith that is behind them. Judas Iscariot is a very interesting figure in Scripture. He is with Jesus from early on, chosen by Jesus himself to be one of the twelve. It's important to state that this by no means implies, nor does this text ever imply that he was a believer. Only that he had consented to associate with Jesus for a time. Many times we heard Jesus tell us that association is not enough. That works are not enough. And Jesus warned early on in his ministry, at least in the record of Matthew, he warned this in Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me ye that work iniquity. Judas was a man who physically speaking followed Jesus, was he not? He was one of the 12. Jesus heard, uh, Judas heard Jesus' teachings. Judas was among the 12 which means he was among them as they cast out demons he may very well have cast some out himself he was one of the group he was among those groups when they were split up into twos that were commissioned to preach the gospel and to take nothing with them no script and no sword and no purse he was in one of those pairs that went to preach the gospel of the kingdom He did many wonderful works in Jesus' name. For all we know, he may have healed in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, There will be many on that day who have done exactly that, but on the day that they stand before the Lord, I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart ye from me, ye that work iniquity. He was never a believer. He was a covetous man. He had allowed covetousness to manifest itself in action. He stole. He'd followed this lust deeper and deeper, offending his conscience more and more, eventually coming susceptible to greater evils and finally making that choice that he would follow his own lust rather than follow Jesus Christ. And we know that he was drawn away of lust into this great evil of which afterwards he even fell into deep regret, didn't he? Matthew 27, verse 3 through 5, the Bible tells us this. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See the out of that. That's your problem, not our problem. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. This man was led into the deceits of sin. He acted upon these deceits. He fell under the condemnation of the devil, and in guilt he, it, it took his life. Such is the legacy of sin in the heart of one who allows it to rule over him. Sin separates us from God, but sin also ravages the soul. And so we cry, as Paul did in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I'd like for us to continue in Matthew 7. Jesus, having taught about not all that will say unto him, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. Picking up right after Jesus' warning, right after that warning, these are the next words that Jesus gives verses 24 to 27. Judas had built a house, this house was one that had associations with Jesus, the works of Jesus, the knowledge of Jesus, but what it didn't have is faith. It was built on sand. And when the point came for the storms of life, for the true trial, the true temptation, the whole house fell. This warning is directly after. The warning of of Matthew 27, verses uh, 24, 25, 26. Is that what we were talking? And 27 is right after Jesus saying, not all who say unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. So the simple question is this. Are you a pretender? Are you an imposter? When a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, we believe on the authority of the Word of God that they are sealed until the day of redemption, that the Holy Spirit comes as that earnest of our inheritance, that we are believers. But some are imposters. And I don't just want to leave you with that question this evening. So what we're going to do in the last bit of our time together is we're going to walk through the biblical evidences that you're a believer Now, these are not evidences that you're not a believer. Let me make this clear. A believer can live in sin. But there are certain evidences that give us confidence that we are, in fact, in the faith. Many of these are found in 1 John. And then we'll branch out beyond those a little bit. If you'd like a more thorough uh, explanation, list of these. I don't give you all of the verses. i put together a list. I didn't bring it this evening, but I'd be happy to put some on the back table and you can take one with you. All of the evidences that the, these are evidences of a believer. Do you see these in your life? Are they evidenced in your life? That's the question. If they are, you can have assurance. If they aren't, it doesn't implicitly mean that you're not a believer. You might be walking in deep carnality and quenching the Spirit. If you've never experienced these, you're probably not a believer. If you have at one point seen these things, but they've faded away, you might be carnal. One way or another, if you don't evidence the things that we're going to talk about, there's something spiritually wrong with you. There's something spiritually wrong with you. And you need to search your heart and make sure that you're in the faith. And then you need to, if if you are in the faith, then you, you need to seek repentance. Because these are evidences of a believer. These are the things that come out of a believer. First, believers keep God's commandments. 1 John 2, verses 3-5. through And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Notice it doesn't say hereby we know Him if we keep His commandments. Hereby we know if we know Him. This is confidence. This is, this is assurance of our salvation. Hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. You want to know that you're in him? You want to look for the signs that you are actually a believer? Do you keep God's commandments? Take special note, this verse does not say that if you disobey God's commandments, you explicitly don't know Him, that you're an unbeliever. Indeed, the very premise of 1 John, we've studied 1 John on a Tuesday night, the very foundation of 1 John chapter 1 is rooted in verse 8. 1 John 1 verse 8 says this listen closely, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then it goes on to say in verse 9 if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we are still going to sin as believers, obviously. No, no question. But when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have no compulsion, no desire to keep God's commandments, if you don't feel conviction, if you don't have a desire to confess your sin, to get right with God, to, to fall back, to come back into fellowship with God, there's something deeply wrong in your spiritual life. That's an evidence of Salvation. 1 John 2, verse 3 does say that when you fail to keep his commandments, when you rest in unconfessed sin, you will fall short of confidence. You'll fall short of knowing that you know him. Your guilty conscience will allow you to fall under the condemnation of the devil, and you will begin to feel like you are unsaved or questioned because you rest under the condemnation of the devil because you're walking in sin. But notice then what John says, that if you say, I do know him, but don't obey him, The truth is not in you. You're lying to yourself. You are living a lie. You're living in contradiction either because you're not in him or because you're not walking in him. 1 John 5 verse 3 says, adding to this, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Let's add another layer to this. Not just do you keep his commandments. How do you keep his commandments? Is every commandment, everything that God asks of you, a trial? You have to drag yourself into the word of God and then drag yourself to do all the things that God has asked you to do. See, if we love God, again, this is not... If you don't do this, you're not a believer. This is if you, if, if you do do this, you are a believer. If His commandments are not grievous to you, if you love the Word of God, if you love God and His Word and you, you read His Word and you want to keep His commandments and they're not, it's not a hardship, well, what, what do you mean? You're missing this and you're missing this and you're missing this. I'm not missing anything when I keep God's commandments. I'm not losing out on anything if I keep God's commandments. You're losing out on fun. No, I'm not. I'm not not losing out on anything. What God has for me is what's best for me. That's the mindset of a believer. Do you have the mindset? Do you keep his commandments? And are his commandments not grievous to you? If, if, If you keep his commandments, if his commandments are not grievous, that's a good sign you're a believer. It's a good sign you're a believer. Second, sign that you're a believer, you love the brethren. First John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. The believer loves the brethren. They love fellowship among the brethren. They're at home when they're among the brethren. There's a difference between going to church and feeling the fellowship that that church provides isn't there it's amazing when i was in china uh, a couple of times i didn't get to go to church very often because it was an underground church and uh, it was dangerous to get us there but uh we got to go to church uh, i think in the six weeks we were there i got to go twice and it amazed me i didn't speak any chinese and these were very rural chinese folks most of them did not speak any english but the spirit in that church service on on a sunday morning was incredible there was such a unity there was such a fellowship and I can't explain it I couldn't talk to them they couldn't talk to me but there was so much fellowship there why because we were all in the faith the unity of the spirit when an unbeliever walks into a true church not any church but into a true church a church that's not pandering to unbelievers whether or not he feels welcome and he ought to uh, he most certainly should not feel comfortable he should feel like he walked into a foreign land a place that's very different from him now often they perceive this foreign feeling to be an unwelcomeness <laughs> they feel unwelcome or they feel judged in some way but but it's not that it's just that we're different and that's not to pump ourselves up or to lift ourselves up and say we're better than them but we the, the very essence of the Christian life Means we ought to be different from them Distinct They should not come among us And feel as though we're exactly like them There should be a difference Because we love the brethren There's a unity among the brethren Now that being said Can a believer hate his brother? Yes he can can he continually hate his brother? Can he live in constant hatred toward his brother? Can he live in... Contra- no, if so, he, he, he's not in the faith. To this end, when there's aught between us and a brother in Christ, we are compelled by God to correct it. If we don't feel the compulsion to correct it, if we're happy living in hatred to a brother, if there's no unity among the brethren, this is cause to question whether we're in the faith. 1 John 4, verses 17 to 21. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If any man say, I love God and hateth, hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen And this commandment we have from him that he who loveth God love his brother also. Notice the strong statements of boldness. Assurance of our standing before God. Do you keep God's commandments? Are his commandments grievous? If you keep God's commandments and his commandments are not grievous, if you feel a draw to keeping the word of God, a desire, now that doesn't mean in every area of life. We all have struggles. We all fight. We all have propensities, right? Do you have a desire to keep God's word? That's a good sign. Do you love the brethren? Do you love fellowship among the brethren? Do you desire to be right with God's people? That's a good sign. These are the the signs that the scriptures give us that tell us that we're in the faith. The third, we confess Jesus Christ to have come in the flesh. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, and then chapter 4, verse 15. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby know we that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Verse uh, four, uh, Chapter 4, verse 15. I'm sorry I didn't show you the delineation there. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. The third test. Is that we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. If we do not believe that Jesus came in the flesh, if we do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, uh, if this fact is not, if, if this is not a fact in your heart, not merely a theory, not mer- merely a guesstimation, not merely a maybe, not merely a possibility, if your heart cannot confess in genuineness that Jesus is the Son of God, God does not dwell in you, nor you in God. I can't know your heart. You know your heart. God knows your heart. Does your heart confess that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, it will if you're in the faith. Why? Because you're in the faith and you have His Spirit dwell- indwelling you. Which means your heart will confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And because ye are the sons of God, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba. Father, God is your Father. You acknowledge that because the spirit of His Son is in your heart, will testify of the Son, the Spirit will testify of the Father, the Spirit will commune with your in spirit, insisting that Jesus has come in the flesh, that Jesus is the Son of God. Are you a believer? Here's the proofs. Do you see it? Are you keeping His commandments? Are his commandments not grievous? Secondly, do you love the brethren? Thirdly, how, does your spirit commune with you and confess that Jesus is the Son of God? Does your spirit cry, Abba, Father? Fourth, are you led of the Spirit? Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God... They are the sons of God, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Similar to the Galatians 4. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. You're led by the spirit of God. We saw that to bear the marks of the Spirit is to confess through the Spirit that Jesus is the Son of God, that He came in the flesh, that that we cry, Abba, Father, we, we, we recognize Him to be our Father. Another mark of the Spirit is that we are led by the Spirit of God. Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are those things which naturally flow out of the life of one who is abiding in Christ, who is walking in the Spirit. We know the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Are you, in the, are you in Christ? Do you see these things coming out of your life? When you've confessed your sin before God, when you're walking in fellowship, when you feel that communion, when, when, you're, when you're, your, your spirit's crying, Abba, Father, these things come out of you. Now let's be clear again. The opposite of this is not necessarily true. A believer can be carnal, can be quenching the Spirit, can be grieving the Spirit. I'm not saying that if you don't see particular evidences right now in your life of these things that you are without question an unbeliever. I'm not here to cause anyone to question whether they're in the faith as much as I'm here to cause us to look for the evidences that we're in the faith perhaps you're quenching the spirit through unconfessed sin today so you're not seeing these things flowing but if you've never seen these marks in your life if you cannot look back to a point where your spirit communes with the spirit of God where where your spirit truly confessed that, that Jesus is the son of God where you desire to keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous where you are in fellowship with the brethren and there is that mystic communion among God's people then Have you ever seen proofs of the faith? We've got a couple more here. First, keep his commandments. Second, love the brethren. Third, confess Jesus to be the Son of God, having come in the flesh. Fourth, being led of the Spirit. Fifth, this is a good one to know whether or not you're carnal or whether you are not one of his. Are you chastened when you sin? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 9. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. That word meaning illegitimate children. If you can sin without ever feeling the need to confess your sin, without confessing your sin, which by the way is the means by which we avert chastening, chastening doesn't need to happen if you acknowledge your sin before the Lord. There might still be natural consequences and, and, and so those consequences play out but chastening, the purpose, the divine purpose of chastening is to draw us to repentance, to draw us to confession of our sin, acknowledgement of our sin. If we acknowledge our sin, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, if we judge ourselves, we need not be judged. If we, having unconfessed sin, living in sin, are not being chastened, if you can sin without confession and without facing any sort of divine consequence in your life, then you know that you're not a child of God. You're an illegitimate child. Because God chastens His children. Now, we're seeing these connect together, right? The Spirit of God confesses, uh, uh, cries out, Abba, Father. We recognize God to be our Father. Uh, We acknowledge Jesus Christ as His Son, that He came in the flesh, that He died on the cross, rose again. Uh, That We're being led of the Spirit. It's all the same thing, that we're we're obeying His commandments. We desire... We don't need a checklist here because these are all, they they all come together. They're, they're, They're there or they're not. Various times, depending on if we're quenching the spirit, whatever. But if you're not chastened, the Bible says you're an imposter. You're a pretender. When you're walking out of fellowship with the Lord, is there conviction? Is there chastening? When you're living in sin and you know it, is there conviction? Is there chastening? Does the chastening stop when you acknowledge your sin before the Lord? This is how the Christian life works. One more. That we'll talk about this evening. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 and I'm not going to I I don't have it up here. But in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 the Bible says, "The natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned." Now, I'm more careful with this one. Because a believer walking in darkness also cannot discern the truth, as 1 John warns. But if you've never understood the things of the Spirit of God, if the Bible isn't just a mystery to you, if you know the facts but you just don't understand why we come here every week and learn it, and there's no excitement and there's no understanding and there's no knowledge and there's no insight and and, and there's nothing inside of you communing with you that that, that these things are true and wanting to learn and wanting to grow and those sorts of things, if you find yourself unable to explain the Bible, uh, to understand the Bible even when it's explained, there's evidence of something deeply spiritually wrong. And so I give you six proofs that you're a believer here. You keep God's commandments. His commandments are not grievous. You love the brethren. You don't hate the brethren. You confess Jesus to be the Son of God having come in the flesh. Your spirit communes with the Lord. You're led of the Spirit. Your spirit cries, Abba, Father. You're divinely chastened for sin, for unconfessed sin in your life if you're walking in unconfessed sin. And you understand the spiritual. These are the tests. It isn't about how much you associate with the church. It isn't about how often you read your Bible. It isn't about how many moral and pious things you do. It isn't about whether or not you've been baptized. It isn't about whether or not you partake with us in communion. The question is, have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? There are many on that day, Jesus warned. And Judas was one of those who had done wonderful works in his name, who had cast out devils in his name. And yet on that day, Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me, I never knew you. And it's not because they tried to accept Christ and somehow it didn't work. It doesn't work that way. It's not because they, they, they honestly thought that that, that, all, that, that they, they, were, they were seeing these things in their lives and whatnot, but somehow they just didn't fulfill something. That's not why. It will be because they were imposters. It was because they looked at the works that they did or the morality that they had or the things that they said out of their mouths and they counted those as their righteousness rather than the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let it not be said that anyone in here will be among those. Time fails to warn believers of what can happen when we give place to the devil. But let us focus on what is most important this evening. Peter says of Judas in Acts chapter 1, verse 17, for he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. And yet Jesus called him the son of perdition. All of these things that transpired in this life and in the life of this church of all those things that we've seen and we've been through together many of us have been together for a while now would to God that no man no woman no child among us would be found to be an imposter or an illegitimate son on the day of judgment do you see these signs have you seen these signs are you living in the fullness of the Christian life as is presented in the word of God Is this your life? Let me add the last one here and then ask you that question again. Is this your life? If it's not, at the very best, there's something spiritually wrong. If this has never been your life, are you in the faith? Or are you an imposter? Because the Bible says we, as surely as anything, can know that we are in the faith. We can know that we know him. Praise God for that. He's given us many marks. Are you exhibiting them? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.